Now Tim's going to come and bring our reading. And it's from Exodus 34, verses 4 to 8. And so Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Right, we're just going to pray for Chris as he comes and explains the passages a bit more. Heavenly Father, be with Chris as he leads us today, unpacking these verses regarding your powerful name and that you are slow to anger. May your Holy Spirit lead him and direct his thoughts and convey what you want to say to each of us today. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, the passage this morning sounded a bit familiar, didn't it? Hopefully we'll have memorised this by the time we finish the series. How about that? That's not a bad thing, is it? Well, I want to ask you a question. What makes you angry? What makes your blood boil? Perhaps, like Janine, it's a sibling who just does your head in. Perhaps it's a child that never does what they're told. Perhaps it's someone who cuts you up on the road when you're driving. Perhaps it's that nuisance call, the 10th that day. I wonder what it is that makes your blood boil. God says that he is slow to anger. Now in Hebrew, it's erek apayim. And it literally means long of nostrils. Don't we just love that phrase? Long of nostrils. Think about what happens when you lose your temper. Your lungs suck in a gulp of air. And your nostrils then flare out as you verbally unload on your victim. I'm sure none of us have ever done that. But I've heard it, I've heard it happen. But if you're slow to anger, when you get mad, you shut your mouth, you purse your lips, and you exhale deeply through your nostrils. Just like that. So let's have a go at that right now, okay? Um, I want you to think of something when I said what makes you angry, maybe something came to your mind immediately. Something is really vexing you at the moment. You're stressed by it. You're frustrated by it. Just picture that person or that thing in your mind, okay? Got that? I'm sure everyone's going, I don't have any anger towards anyone or anything. Well, that's a great thing if you don't. But if you do and you're human, um, just picture that 
in your head right now, that thing that's stressing you out. And I want you to breathe in deeply. Purse your lips. Now breathe out deeply through your nostrils. Feels good, doesn't it? Maybe do that a few more times if you're really struggling. But this is how God is to his children. He is compassionate, womb-like, as we heard last week. He is slow to anger, long of nostril, patient in the extreme. How long are your nostrils? How about with that colleague at work who drives you mad? With your spouse when you have a disagreement? With that learner driver you're stuck behind for miles? With your children when they are rude and disobedient? How long are your nostrils? This phrase is used in Proverbs 14 where it says, whoever is patient long-nostrilled, has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. So true, isn't it? As many of the Proverbs are. How many of us have said or done something that we sorely regret afterwards? When we've done or said something in the heat of the moment and we think, oh, I wish I hadn't said that or done that, but it's too late. You can't take it back. Being long-nostrilled is not easy. It requires a lot of willpower, a lot of counting to ten and breathing deeply. It requires a lot of self-control to not say the thing that you really want to say or not do the thing you really want to do. I wish I could be a little more long-nostrilled. Coming from a line of fiery redheads has meant I've not always had a handle on my temper as much as I would like. Becoming a parent, as Janine mentioned earlier, has certainly tested that even more than it had before. And yet, strangely, it has also grown my nostrils too. My nostrils are much longer than they used to be. I'm pretty proud of that. And this um, nostril image, well, my mother certainly had some long nostrils as I grew up, and I know my wife has very good nostrils too, with our children and with me. And this is how God is to his children. He is compassionate, he is womb-like, he is slow to anger, long of nostril. Some translations have patient, Others have long-suffering. I like that one. Long-suffering. And one ancient translation from Hebrew to Aramaic, probably the language Jesus grew up speaking, paraphrased it as, God is patient, the one who makes anger distant and brings compassion near. I like that one. That's on the notice sheet, so you've got that one to take home. Now, this image of God is one that we saw in the story of the prodigal son last week, who makes anger distant and brings compassion near. So God is slow to anger, 
you have to work really, really, really hard to make him angry. But he can get angry, really angry at times. It's not something we like to think about or talk about, but the Bible speaks of God's wrath or wrath. I never know which one to say. It's like scone or scone, isn't it? I I go with wrath. Some of you may go wrath. It's up to you. No judgment, okay? But the Bible speaks of God's wrath more than 600 times. I'm just going to read a little section from the book God Has a Name by John Mark Comer, which we've based the series on. He says, in the Psalms, we read in Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. So John Mark Comer goes on to say, God has a sword, a bow, a weapons depot. Maybe that's why the prophet Habakkuk prays in wrath, remember your mercy. King David says this about God in Psalm 5, you hate all who do wrong, you destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord Yahweh, detest. Or Psalm 11, Yahweh examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. John Mark Comer goes on to say, God hates, he detests people, but I thought God is love. Well, notice who God hates, the wicked and those who love violence. Imagine the terrorist in a shopping center with bombs strapped to his chest, the con artist ripping off the elderly widow, the corrupt politician, the abusive father, the date rapist who gets off scot-free, the paedophile who gets called uncle. When people say to me, I can't believe in a God of wrath, I say, yes, you can. Every time you read about a child sold into prostitution by her family, every time you hear about yet another oil spill by a careless, greedy multinational corporation, every time you read about rape or murder or genocide or war, you think to yourself, this is not how it's supposed to be. And you're right. This is not how it's supposed to be. It's not God's will. There's no secret plan behind all the injustice in the world. It's evil, plain and simple. The gods and human beings are at war with Yahweh. Yes, Yahweh has a plan to work all things for the good, but he still feels pain over war and injustice. Remember he's a person, not an idea. He has feelings. And he feels anger over evil in the world. There are times when the healthy, emotionally mature response to evil is anger. But notice that God's anger is very different from our anger. At least a lot of our anger anyway. Let me sketch out a few examples. 
our anger is almost always from a wounded ego. Somebody's hurt us or made us feel stupid or taken advantage of us or didn't do what we wanted. It's inherently selfish, even narcissistic at times. But Yahweh's anger is from a parent-like love for his children, who's angry at the drug dealer for trying to sell dope to our children, or little Johnny for constantly running into the middle of the road. Our anger is usually unjust. It's disproportionate to the offense. I think of the theologian Cornelius uh, Plantinger's line, all shots are return fire meaning human history is just an endless cycle of violence. He hit me, so I beat him to a pulp. He burned down my barn, so I killed his wife. They flew planes into our skyscrapers, so we invaded their country, etc., etc. And this is where the command in the Torah of eye for eye and tooth for tooth was millennia ahead of its time. By saying eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it limited the amount of revenge that was taking place. You see, the natural tendency when somebody gives you a black eye is to give them two. We say we want justice, but usually we want revenge. God's anger isn't like that. The punishment fits the crime. There's a justice we just can't match. Our anger or at least my anger, is quick to flare up. It's in a rush. It doesn't wait for the whole story to come out or to give a second chance. It's impatient. Whereas Yahweh's anger is on tempo, patiently waiting. It builds up to the right time and the right place. It is just. So here's the ground we've covered so far. God does get angry, but it's unusual. His baseline is compassion and graciousness, slow to anger. And we saw this last week as we heard of the story of Jonah. And the fact that when Nineveh repented, God relented. He had mercy. And the Ninevites rejoiced, but Jonah was not a happy bunny. But fast forward 150 years to the prophet of Nahum. You can find his little book towards the end of the Old Testament. It's only three chapters. And we see that Nineveh have unfortunately returned to their evil ways. To put it in context, they've taken 10 of Israel's 12 tribes into slavery killing off God's people and leaving the north of Israel in a smoldering heap. And Yahweh's patience has finally reached its limits. And so Nahum prophesies over Nineveh. He says this, The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Did you hear it? This is a quote from Exodus 34. 
Did you hear it? Now, interestingly, Exodus 34 is quoted by Jonah when God spares the city and then by Nahum the second time when God says enough is enough. So what do we make of this? Well, as we've said, Yahweh's baseline emotion towards us, towards humanity, is mercy. He is the compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. But there comes a time when even God's patience runs out. And he can't stand by and let evil run roughshod anymore. What's really interesting, though, is that as far as we know, Nineveh wasn't destroyed by an act of God, like a freak tsunami or a citywide plague or fire from heaven. It was destroyed by Babylon, the up-and-coming power to the south. And by destroyed, I mean completely wiped out. So what's going on here? Did God cause Babylon to wipe out Nineveh? I'm not sure. The likelihood is, is that Babylon were going to do this anyway because they were thirsty to assert their power and build their empire. What God did was remove his hand of protection from Nineveh. He let it happen. And this is one of the ways God deals with sin. It's kind of a passive wrath. wrath. It's when, despite being shown great mercy and protection again and again and again and again and again and again, that person or people group or nation persists in evil in destructive habits that do unspeakable damage and God says, okay, have it your own way. It would seem sin has a habit of recoiling on the sinner. It eventually destroys the sinner and often those around them. But this is why it is so good that God's baseline towards us is mercy. That he is compassionate and gracious. That he is slow to anger. And compared to the many other gods and goddesses of the time of Moses and the secular gods of money, wealth and fame many follow today, who are often mean-spirited, controlling, unreasonable and hostile, Yahweh is the opposite. He is slow to anger full of grace and compassion. But when he does get angry, he gets angry. And it's the anger of a parent for their child. A father who wants the best for their children and can't stand by and watch them be abused or ruin their lives in destructive living. It's an anger that comes out of a deep Love, an abounding love. It's patient, it's just, and it's unselfish. True love leads to anger. We get angry 
about things or people we care deeply about. You see, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. It's choosing not to care. But we are told in the scriptures that God is love. And he cares deeply about his children, about the world he has made. And so he acted. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, love personified. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see the love of the Father, his compassion, his grace, his patience, his mercy at work. But Jesus got angry too. Now it's easy to think, and many of us have done this, um, to think of God in the Old Testament as the grumpy, angry, violent father, and Jesus as the nice, tolerant, progressive son who gets along with everyone, never judges or gets angry. But any brief time in scripture will tell you that that is simply not true. And we saw that last week. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And Jesus had some hard truths to tell. He upended how people understood God and the scriptures. How are you getting on with love your enemies? That's not an easy one to swallow, is it? No. He upended how people understood God and the scriptures. He challenged and upset the religious authorities. He proclaimed the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In fact, Jesus said more about the coming judgment than any teacher in the New Testament. He didn't end up on the cross because he was nice. He ended up there because he challenged the injustices he saw. And one such act was when Jesus went to the temple in Jerusalem. And I'm just going to read an excerpt from the book again. For first century Jews, the temple was the axis point between heaven and earth, a sacred space. But what Jesus finds there is beyond disturbing. The priests had become the aristocracy of the day and were in bed with Rome. The spiritual leaders of the nation had become corrupt. It's a tragic story that we've seen play out time and time again. And here's what they did so you understand why Jesus got so angry. You see, you would come to the temple with, say, a lamb to sacrifice to Yahweh. Maybe you had to walk two or three days just to get there from your village. You brought a good lamb, one of your best, because the Torah said the sacrifice had to be without blemish. But the priest would inspect your lamb and say... Ah, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but nah, your lamb isn't good enough. But we just happen to have one for sale that's been pre-approved. And then he would sell it to you for a rip-off price. Sound fair? Hmm. 
Or let's say you came from Rome or Alexandria, a much longer journey. Now, instead of a lamb, you would bring money to buy a sacrifice on site in Jerusalem. I mean, who wants to walk hundreds of miles with a goat? That's not fun. But when you got to the temple in Jerusalem, the money changers would say, nah, I'm sorry, but the priests don't take Roman currency here. You need to pay with the temple coin. And of course, they were the only bank in town. So they could charge an exorbitant exchange rate. So what does Jesus do? He gets mad. He gets really mad. He makes a whip. True story. He makes a whip and he starts chasing the money changers out of the temple. He turns over the table, dumping money and animals on the ground, screaming at the religious establishment, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And the writer John has a great ending line to this story. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Is this how you picture Jesus? Whip in hand, fire in his eyes, knocking over tables and screaming at the money changers as they duck for cover and make a run for it. This is one of those stories we skip in Sunday school. <laughs> Mark says here in the, in the book, and I completely relate to this. He said, I grew up in the 80s. Anybody remember the flannel graph? The, the fuzzy felt Jesus. You remember? Yeah. This story never made it onto the flannel graph. We had Jesus the Good Shepherd, we had Jesus walking on water, and Jesus with the children. But we never had angry Jesus with a weapon in his hand and spittle on his chin. Nope, never had that one in the fuzzy felt Jesus storybook. But it makes sense. He's facing nauseating injustice, and he is livid. How else is Jesus supposed to feel? Anger is the mature, emotionally healthy response to this kind of corruption and gross defamation of Yahweh's name. But here's what you need to see. This story happens at the end of Jesus' life, right before the cross. In fact, it's one of the primary reasons that Jesus is put under arrest and then killed. You don't upset the status quo of the religious hierarchy and live. But Jesus had been to the temple dozens, if not hundreds of times. He'd been coming there since he was a boy. It's not like he just walks in, sees the money changers racket and goes postal. Nothing about this story is spur of the moment. No, this is a thought-out, deliberate, on-purpose kind of anger. A judgment, a reckoning, a line in the sand. After years of calling Israel to repentance, Jesus says, enough. 
Now, hearing this story might have challenged the way you see Jesus. But as I said before, true love gets angry. If you care deeply about someone, then when they hurt or they're in trouble, you respond, you act, you have compassion. We are told in the scripture that God is love. We don't read God is wrath. His anger, his wrath comes out of his deep love for us, for his world. It's his response to injustice and evil. As Jesus declared, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world merely to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The story of Jesus in the temple driving out the corrupt and the unjust is a foretaste of what is to come on his return. During his time on earth, Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, and we've sung about that this morning, where Yahweh's peace and wholeness and justice and righteousness were experienced. We see it and we sense it when God's spirit is at work in our lives, and then we look at the news and we say, what's going on? How can this be? You see, this kingdom is now. And it's not yet. It's here in part, but it's not fully here yet until Jesus comes again. And when he does, Jesus will vanquish evil and justice once and for all and bring the full reign of his kingdom but until that day comes, rest in Jesus' love for you. Rest in his righteousness. Rest in his victory over death and sin. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but saved.